0: Isaiah chapter 9, in, in the red Bibles, if that's what you're using, is, uh, it's on page 331. 331. We're continuing our Advent series that we're calling Story of Hope. And in this series, we're looking at the book of Isaiah and uh, seeing how, how, how he, as a prophet of the Lord, speaks this word of hope to God's people. And he was commissioned by God to bring this message of hope to the people of Israel and Judah. You see, at this time in the history of God's people, King David has already sat on the throne under what is known as the Golden Age of Israel. And his son, King Solomon, after him likewise, sat on the throne. But then after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel split in two. And Solomon's brothers fought for the throne and separated them into the Northern Empire, uh, which we read is called Israel, and the Southern Empire, which we know as Judah. And uh, it's in that context that Isaiah 9 comes to us because this is a word of prophecy spoken to the people in the Northern Empire, the people of Israel. Um, They are facing this approaching army of the Assyrians who uh, are going to come and destroy them unless they repent. But we know from history that they don't. And Assyria does come and he wipes them out. And so it's in the midst of that context that we read Isaiah 9 and uh, we hear about this hope for peace. So let's read the first seven verses together. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he did, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray now that you would uh, illumine our hearts to the truth of your word. We pray this through your spirit in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, when the angel comes to meet Mary and tells her that she's going to conceive and bear a child, he tells her that this child is going to uh, be called the Son of the Most High, and that he will occupy the, king of the, king, uh, the throne of King David, and that he will reign forever, that his kingdom will have no end. And then after Jesus is born, the angel goes out to the shepherds. And the angel says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus' birth story is, is told within this context of a coming king who will bring peace. And the whole idea of the peace of this king comes from Isaiah 9. It's in this passage that we find the need for peace, this beautiful picture of peace and the source of peace. That's what we're going to look at today. Why do we need this peace? What is it going to look like when it arrives? And then who's going to bring it? How do we get it? First, the need for peace. Chapter 9 begins with a conjunction, it's as though Isaiah is, is picking up the thought that he had back in chapter 8. Um, the, the chapter and verse markings in our Bible, they aren't original. They're sort of put in there for our aid. Uh, but in the original, Isaiah is continuing this thought that he's got from chapter 8. In fact, if you look at verse 2, you, you see the text is sort of set off, and it begins this poem. Well, in original, the original manuscripts... The first verse of chapter 9 is actually the last verse of chapter 8. And so to understand what Isaiah is saying in chapter 9, verse 1, we have to understand what he's been building up in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, he has prophesied this coming gloom and distress. He actually says in verse uh, 17 of chapter 8, if you're in your Bible, you can look, that the Lord has hid his face from his people. He's turned his back against his people. This is what Isaiah says in verse 2 of chapter 9, that the people are walking in darkness, that they're dwelling in deep darkness. It's not some cosmic shadow cloud that's covered the sun. He's talking about this moral and spiritual description of the people in the Northern Empire. The Lord has turned his face away from them. They're in darkness. You have to ask why. Why would the Lord turn his face away from his people? We need to know that in the Northern Empire, after King Solomon died and one of his sons stepped into the throne and then after him throne after throne, in the Northern Empire, there was never a good king. If you look at 1st and 2nd Kings, which are books that chronicle the, the history of Israel and the life of these kings, every time that a new king sits on the throne in the northern empire, we read this. And so King So-and-so did what was evil in the sight of God and led Israel into great sin. Every time. Every king that came to Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and led the people into sin. There was no good king in Israel. And this was awful. Because it was, it was the role of the king to represent God to the people. It was the role of the king to rule with righteousness and justice because God is a God of righteousness and justice. It was the responsibility of the king to lead the people in the way of the Lord. In fact, it, it, when, a king was supposed to, when the king took the throne, one of their first objectives was to take the law from the temple and write for themselves a copy of the law. So that the law could go back to the temple, but then in the king's palace, the king had the law too. It was the role of the king to lead the people to the Lord. But in the northern empire, king after king after king led them someplace else. They didn't do their job. And so the people were walking in darkness... They were dwelling in deep darkness because their spiritual leader had failed to lead them to salvation. While the kings of Israel's day, they're done, and the idea of kings have been fulfilled in the unending reign of our king of kings, Jesus, nonetheless, there are positions of power and authority, and influence that still exists in in the life of the church, and in our everyday lives, and and not just formal positions like like pastor or elder, but informal positions too. And not even just in the church, but in our lives, we have these positions of power and authority. I'd argue that everyone has some leadership responsibility. If you're a mother or father, you have influence over your children. If you are a worker, a business person, you have authority in the way that you conduct your life and you influence over your colleagues and anyone under you. If you're a friend, you have influence over your friends. And there are times and places for formal structures, like I said, pastor, elder of a church, called to shepherd the flock of God. And we do see that that husbands and fathers have a special charge at times to lead following the sacrificial example of our Savior Jesus. But everyone in here has some authority, a degree of influence. You have to ask yourself, how are you using that power given to you? Are you leading people to Jesus. Are you using your influence to influence people to the Lord? It's popular in, on social media now um, to follow accounts of people who are content creators and, and influencers. That's a title given. To, that's a job people can have now, where, where corporations and companies um, you know, sponsor these people and give them um, clothes and, and products and, and, and other things to, to show people online. This is the kind of life that you can have if you buy these clothes. This is the kind of life you can have if you take this medicine or have this diet or eat this kind of food. Influencing is just part of our normal day now, but it, it's been like that for a while. Even before Instagram Look, magazines, that's their job, to say this is the kind of life that you can have if you buy this or that. Just think of Martha Stewart. I mean, she built an empire on the ability to lead people to an ideal way of life. If you buy her cookbooks and make her food and use her cooking utensils and decorate your house like that, man, what a joyful and abundant life you might have. The role of leading does not go away when the kingdom and kings go away. Every one of us, we have power and authority and influence by the way we conduct our lives. People see us and they see what we're pointing people to. We haven't talked a lot about the office of Pastor or elder or even leadership in general at Story Church. I mean, we're we're small enough that we haven't come across that need for uh, hiring people or setting up new positions, but we're getting there. You know, one day we are going to have more staff. We are going to have other leaders who are responsible for Bible studies and community groups. We are going to have leaders who are responsible for our outreach programs. We are going to have leaders who people here will look to and say, I want to follow them. We already have people looking at one another and saying, I want to follow them. You have to ask yourself, as a part of this church, what are you leading people to? Are you leading people to the Lord? You know, there have been churches that have crumbled and and Christians who have been hurt by leaders who have been given the task of pointing people to Jesus but have really pointed them to a, a brand or a culture or themselves. If you ever want to be a leader at Story Church, you need to ask Who am I already leading? Who am I leading them to? Everyone's got some degree of influence. Are you leading people to Jesus? The kings of the northern kingdom were not leading the people to God. They were leading them away from him, and so they were walking in darkness, and there was no peace. That's why we need peace. We need a new king. What does that look like? What is it going to look like when Isaiah's prophecy comes true and and, and then peace comes to the people? What is the picture that Isaiah paints for us? When I think about peace, and maybe you do too, I think of peace as sort of the absence of war. We, We even talk about like epics of history in those terms. You know, nations go through seasons of wartime and peacetime. They're sort of opposites of one another, and certainly the absence of war is part of it. Verse 5 describes that the, the boots of the armies and the garments that have been rolled in blood, they'll be used for fuel for the fire. War is going to be done away with when this peace comes. But we see that biblically, peace is far more than just the absence of strife. It's far more than just the absence of war. We see in verse 3 that peace looks like this experience of abundant joy. Isaiah says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice over you with the joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. This is a picture of abundance. A picture of plenty. It's joy, not fear. Imagine the, the fear that the northern empire might have been feeling at this time. like They know that Assyria is going to come and wipe them out. And so they're, they're worried. I mean, they're going to see family and friends and communities wiped out. Their names and legacies are going to be done away with. I mean, the, it says the harvest was they would have been concerned that the armies would have come in and wiped out their fields and their storehouses. I mean, just think about, like, their economy would collapse. Their businesses would be over with. And the armies would march through and, and steal and plunder and take away. But rather than experience this fear, Isaiah says, when this peace comes, you will have joy. You are not going to decrease, you are going to multiply. You're scared that your harvest is going to be small. No, you're going to be joyful and abundant in your harvest. You're not going to be divided as spoil. You will rejoice at the spoils that you have. Yes, this is a picture of abundant joy. But the joy is not in those things. The joy is before the Lord. That's what is their real source of joy, it's joy not in the things themselves, but in the God who is going to give it to them. Real joy, real lasting joy, does not come in acquiring things and materials and acclaims from people. Those things fail us. They fade away. I mean, I'm 31. I don't have the looks that I once had. I don't have you know the money I have in my bank account. it comes and goes. You know, popularity and fame and prestige, that that can go away like an instant in today's world. These things that we try to seek after and find joy in, they could be gone. But real joy that comes from this real peace is joy in the Lord who provides. But this picture of peace is not just joy, and it's not just the absence of war. We also see this picture of peace is the abolition of oppression and injustice. Isaiah says, the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulders, the rod of the oppressed, they will be broken. And he uses these three sentences to talk about the three different ways in which we as humans experience oppression. He talks about the yoke, uh, and that's, that's the, the thing put on cattle's backs that pulls the cart. This is like, the, the everyday burdens of work and life. I went to the BMV the other day to get a new license, and I know about the burdens of everyday life. It, it, that'll be done away with. But then the, the what is it, the, the staff on his shoulders? That, that's, that's someone putting a staff behind shoulders, and you're bent over. Th- this is oppression that's forced upon someone. I I will not begin to say uh, that I know what that feels like. I I have had a very um, wonderful life and have not faced oppression that has been forced upon me because of who knows what. But let's not kid ourselves. We live in a world and in a society and in a country in which that's not the story of everyone. And that whether it's because of your skin color or your age or your ability or your education, there are systems at place that bring oppression. Those will be done away with. And then last, the rod. The rod of the oppressor. This is oppression that comes from someone who is being hostile the oppression that comes because it is targeted and is malicious and is going after someone, that too will be broken. God has promised this liberation. And it's not specific. He's not talking about a specific event in which this will all go away. He's talking about when the peace of the Lord comes and reigns, Oppression will be no more. I think the Christian church in the contemporary Western world, what we might call the evangelical church, of the tradition of which we are a part of, that we have, unfortunately, taken verses like this that talk about oppression, and we have bent them to mean something that they don't say. I I think that at times we have taken words like oppression and we have said that, that what this means is man's true bondage is to personal sin and that when Christ comes, he comes to free us from that oppression. I'm not saying that's not true. But I'm saying that we have taken verses like this and have said, this is what this means. That's one extreme. The other extreme that some in the church have done is they've looked at this verse and they've said, what this verse means is that, don't you see... There is social and political and cultural oppression. And that when Jesus comes, he's going to give us this alternative way of living, this alternative politics, this alternative government, in which socially and politically there will be no more oppression. That's what this verse means. We've taken it and said it's either this or that. If it's this, it can't mean that. Or if it's that, it can't mean this. Neither of these extremes is adequate enough to get at what Isaiah is saying. To make God primarily concerned about political freedom is to deny his concern for the personal sin and its destructive effects in our lives and in the lives of those that we sin against. But to make primary and exclusive Our personal sin is to have too small a scope of both the ramifications of sin in this world and what God is doing about it. Because if we make this exclusively about personal sin, then what we are saying is sin only affects me, only affects people. But we know from the story of the Bible that sin works its way into our society, and it corrupts, and it breaks down. And the redemption that Jesus has purchased, yes, it is our redemption and reconciliation back to the Father, but we also read in Colossians 1 that God is reconciling all things to himself, both in heaven and on earth. So yes, we make his redemption too small. Isaiah is saying both of these things. He's saying when peace comes, there will be human flourishing. He says that oppression will be done away with. Sin will be no more. The effects of sin in this world will be gone. Think about the areas of darkness in your own life? Where do you experience strife? Where do you experience relational discord? Where are you experiencing oppression and the burdens of life? Isaiah is promising that there is peace that is coming into those areas. It is far bigger than you could ever imagine. I love this illustration from C.S. Lewis. He talks about, uh, imagine you, you need some work done on your house. Maybe you've got a broken pipe that needs to be fixed. And you call someone, uh, you hire him to come into your house and, and work on your house. And at first, you, you're thankful because the, 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 the fix-it man, is he's working on the pipes. But then you realize, well, he's, he's actually replacing the whole vanity. And he's giving you new painted walls He's actually blowing out this wall and he's building out a new wing in your house and now you've got a grand entrance with a beautiful staircase and now your, your house is four stories instead of two and it's become this grand palace. And he says, this is what happens when the Lord comes into your life. You think that he's gonna come in and, and fix up this little thing, this little area of darkness that you've got going on in your life. But, but God's scope of peace and joy and redemption in your life is far bigger. He's going to come in where you ask him to come, but he's going to change everything about you. He's bringing this glorious redemption. And it's not just going to affect your life, because he invites us now to join him in bringing that peace around us. That's what Isaiah is promising. This is the picture of peace that God wants to do in our lives. So where does it come from? Where, where do we see this happening? Where do we look for, for this peace? And if you think about it, um, I, I love the, um, when we think about peace, um, I, I think of like the um, beauty contest when they ask the, the interview portion. Um, you know, what, what do you hope for? World peace. Or if you think of like action movies, I, there's, I'm sure there's an Avengers movie where the desire is we want to have world peace. And, and the way that we often think about achieving peace is we look to figures and politicians and, and leaders and celebrities and activists and people who will champion the cause of peace. They will enact policies and set regulations and, and abolish evildoers for the sake of setting up world peace. But often, and especially in those movies, when you give too much power to one person, they don't create peace, they create chaos. And so some people have sort of swung the opposite pendulum and they look for peace, not from giving power to one person, but by seeking freedom from authority, freedom from power, freedom from institutions. We see here, though, that what we need is not a king like all the other kings in the Northern Empire. And we don't need to abolish the idea of a king altogether. What we need is a true king, the right king, the true king who will come and bring peace. And that's what Isaiah points us to. He says that there is a child who is going to be born, a son will be given. And upon his shoulders will be the government. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will sit on the throne of David. This is the one who will bring peace. He's not some man who who achieves his way to be king. He's born king. He's a child king. He's a wonderful counselor. He doesn't need people speaking into his, his mind and heart. He's, he's got everything he needs in himself. He is his own counselor, and he decides things wonderfully. He's mighty God, God himself, the one with great power and authority. He's everlasting Father. This isn't a comment about the Trinity. This is talking about like a father who cares for his children, This leader will put the needs of his people forever above his own. He's the prince of peace. He's the one who will come and lead the people back to the Lord. He will bring peace between God and man and between man and man. And he will sit on the throne of his father, David, forever. Who is this? Jesus. We started looking at Luke, and this is what was prophesied. This is Jesus. Jesus wasn't born and then became king. He was born the king. The wise men came and bowed down and worshiped him as king. Jesus, he didn't need counselors in his life. He abided in the word of God. He didn't do anything or say anything that his Father in heaven did not tell him to do or say. And he's mighty God. He is God in the flesh, the one who speaks to the waters of the sea and they go still. He heals the sick, he brings sight to the blind, and he raises the dead back to life. He's the everlasting Father, always putting the needs of his people ahead of his own to the point of dying on the cross in their place. He is the Prince of Peace, the one who lived the perfect life in our place, who died in our place, becoming our substitutionary atoning sacrifice, bringing us back to the Father. He gives us peace with one another, now gathering us in himself. And he sits on the throne, high and exalted, At the hand of the Father, until every enemy will be made under his feet. Jesus is the one from whom and through whom we can experience this peace. What great joy! Then this poem begins with gloom and darkness, but it ends with a reigning king and joy. How do we make it ours? How do we experience that joy, that peace today? How how can we participate in it? Well, Isaiah concludes by saying, it is the zeal of the Lord that will do this. He is certain that one day the Lord will bring peace. He is so certain of this that he actually can talk about future events as if they've already happened. Look throughout this whole poem. He uses past tense verbs. He talks about them as if they have already happened. He is so confident in his trust of the Lord to bring about this peace that he speaks of them as though they were already true. Friends, that's how we participate in that peace now. We have faith to hold on to something that is promised to us, that though our circumstances now do not show it, we can be sure that it will. Isn't that what faith is? Hebrews 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Isaiah had faith to see beyond his present circumstances and say, the peace of the Lord will come to you. He was so certain of that, that he spoke of it as if it were already there. Friends, we're invited now in light of the coming of the King. Although the world around us is not this glorious picture of peace, we have the assurance that the Lord will establish it because he has already sent us his king. We celebrate Advent because of that. We, we look beyond our present circumstances and we take hold of that promise that peace will come. Let's pray.